Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Scott Bland is Politico's national politics editor, which means that he leads all of our 2022 midterm coverage. And to do it, he has a team of about 15 reporters he deploys in campaigns around the country. Number one thing we're focused on is the fight for control of the Senate. And it's that time of year when people like Scott start to sweat. But, you know, how are the coalitions shifting? What can they tell us about Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin? It's his job to make sure that readers and listeners aren't surprised on election night, that we've considered and reported on all of the possible outcomes, not just the most likely ones, according to the conventional wisdom. The specter of 2016 still haunts newsrooms in 2022. The possibility that Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College to Donald Trump was undercovered, to say the least. The polls showed that, that Donald Trump was going to lose. And I and, and many others were way too dialed in on that. And it turns out it's very important to think about elections in terms of the range of possibilities. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. That 2016 miss continues to shape political coverage in newsrooms across the country. Nowadays, top political editors spend a lot more time thinking about outliers, those black swan scenarios with seemingly low probabilities. Could the Democrats win the House while the Republicans take the Senate? Could all of those allegedly flawed Trump-backed candidates sweep their races? Could Biden be the first president since 2002 to avoid a first midterm shellacking? The political landscape can change quickly. One week, inflation seems to be driving voters. The next week, it's abortion rights. The biggest mistake we make in political coverage is to assume that whatever the current trend is will continue into the future. Part of Scott's job is to push back against that natural human tendency. So today, we're going to break down the 2020 midterms with Scott with a special emphasis on some contrarian takes to make sure you are not surprised when you wake up on Wednesday morning after Election Day. If our readers don't understand on November 8th why something that has happened happened, then I've failed. So I think about this a lot. <laughs> and one of the ways I think about it is actually kind of going back to my experience in 2016, where I and many other people got a lot of stuff wrong. And I am very thankful to this day that this happened kind of earlier in my career than later because... What happened in 2016 that people got wrong? <laughs> the polls showed that Donald Trump was going to lose, right? Yeah. And every kind of other metric that we had that we thought was reliable said the same. And I and many others were way too dialed in on that. And 
the way I think about it, because I'm a numbers nerd, is thinking about a bell curve. And this is actually how like 538 visualizes the fight for the Senate, right? But you can kind of think about a bell curve and whatever side is favored, right? You can kind of place the top of that curve of like all the likely outcomes on their side of the ledger, right? If you think Republicans are favored to take over the House, then most of the stuff under that curve is going to tilt that way. But there's a long tail on either side of possible outcomes. And we want to make sure that we're explaining what's going on. That doesn't mean we're writing half the stories one way and half the stories the other way. But what we're saying is, okay, is there some chance that Democrats could keep the House even though Republicans are favored? Sure. So what is that going to look like? Well, it probably is going to have to start with them winning a bunch of Republican seats in districts Joe Biden carried because they're already favored to lose some through redistricting and other stuff and House Democrats who represent districts that Trump carried. That's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of trying to do the whole range of stories about what's going on in the landscape and to prepare for what might happen. I think back to 2020 again, and there was polling error in a number of key states. And I think back to, you know, early in the night, we got the first dump of big early vote count from Florida. And Miami-Dade County was fairly close. And it's been this Democratic stronghold in recent elections. And I remember thinking in that moment, it's like, whoa, this is surprising. And then the next thing I thought is, I know exactly what's going on here, because a bunch of our colleagues had been writing stories about Democrats being concerned about weakness among Cuban-American voters and Latino voters more broadly in 2020. And it hadn't really been showing up in a lot of public polls, but there were these deep concerns about it. Yeah. Just to go back to the 2016 experience for a second, to dwell on that for one second, what was it in the sort of training of political journalists of our, I'm a little older than you, I think, but our generation, I'll throw you into my generation, or just your generation. What do you think it is that we weren't trained to do that 2016 caused us to rethink and to think more in probabilities than in certainties? <laughs> yeah, in kind of probabilities as opposed to binaries, right? Like, it's very hard to challenge your own opinion about something. And we're always kind of watching elections broadly for clues about, okay, what's going to happen? And so you kind of reach a feeling about it, and then challenging that is tough. Um, you know, I also think there's great pressure on political journalists, or there has to be predictive, to be first T to... What's going to happen. Tell us exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. The, the difference between the binaries is so massive in terms right. of policy and everything else. You know, a few thousand votes and Trump versus Trump's president, not Biden. Right. So when you tell people, uh, you know, 60% chance Biden wins, 40% chance Trump wins, that's uh, those two outcomes are so vastly different. And the number of people whose mind can decide that, you know, is so tiny it makes those probabilities not as useful for a lot of people who just want to know the outcome. Right, right. And look, like, we don't know the outcome. We should be <laughs> we should be upfront about that. But I really do think that thinking through things in terms of thinking through what might happen and then, okay, why would that happen? Yeah. It sounds very basic, but it's kind of, you know, you, you think about the various endpoints of the path and you try and report out, like, okay, like, how would one get there? It would be easy to, like, dismiss that way of thinking as not rigorous or like, oh, you're not really like staking yourself to... You don't have like a set take on the election and people want that. All right. So take us through some of the stories 
that you've put an emphasis on with your team to sort of make sure that our readers have these different scenarios or at least have a taste of these possible outcomes going into election night? Yeah. Well, I think the number one thing we're focused on is the fight for control of the Senate. It's very much up in the air. What's going to happen? I'll tell you what I think is going to happen because I'm a, I'm a, a pessimist by nature. I think we're going to end up having to cover the fight for the Senate for another month after because it's going to come down to Georgia in a runoff again. Just like it did last time, yeah. And so, and, and what would that look like? So, it, basically, for people the, who forgot two years yeah, ago, yeah. So, the, the Senate's fifty-fifty right now, right? Democrats control it by dint of Vice President Harris uh, having having the tie-breaking vote. But so, if Republicans flip one seat, they've got it. And there's four, maybe five, kind of key races in the core of the map right now. Um, but it looks like I would probably call them all toss-ups. But I would say maybe Republicans are favored to flip Nevada, but Democrats are favored to flip Pennsylvania. And okay, that puts us right back where we started at 50-50. And then in Georgia, they have this unusual state law that if no one gets a majority of the vote, the top two go to a runoff. Uh, a lot of states, especially in the South, have this in their primaries. It's kind of a, a relic of some racist policymaking. It's a relic of Jim Crow election laws? Yeah. like I mean, I think there are other reasons too, but one of the things it was used for was to prevent black candidates from winning primaries. Right. If all of the non-white candidates split the vote and the black candidate got a plurality. Yeah. Anyway, Georgia has this for its general elections, too. And uh, this is how John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock won their seats in 2020. They both went to runoffs, and they both won. But Warnock's seat was a special election. Um, So he's running for the full term this time. And uh, he's up against Herschel Walker, who needs no introduction, either for football fans or (laughs) politics fans at this point. Our podcast listeners. Yeah. But critically, there's also a libertarian on the ballot. And, you know, it only takes a couple points in a close race going third party to pull everyone under 50 percent of the vote. And then at that point, we're going to overtime, uh, which would be in early December this year. And given Herschel Walker's struggles, you could see some right leaning voters having the libertarian candidate being an attractive option. Yeah. And it's kind of tough to put an exact like chance on it. Definitely, I've felt as I've discussed this with colleagues, and we did that story in the, in the summer, I'm trying to like speak this out of existence by talking <laughs> talking about it because I don't want the election to go on until December. Um, Has that law over in recent history benefited one party over the other? Uh, obviously benefited the Democrats last time. And since it did benefit the Democrats last time, I was wondering if there was any movement in the state to kill the Georgia runoff idea, but maybe it's not as clear cut as benefiting one party over the other in general. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. There was a Senate runoff in 2008 in Georgia, um, right after Obama won the presidency. And the Democrats just got absolutely crushed. Um, (laughs) So that was at least the most recent example of a Senate runoff there. So like, not really clear it by its construction favors one party or the yeah. other, but um, yeah, that's what, yeah, yeah. But so you know, last time it was in January in 2021. It was actually on January 5th, 2021. The results kind of got blown out of the water by another story the next day. But uh, if there is a runoff in Georgia this year, it would be on December 6th, according to the Secretary of State's office. So a lot earlier, we'll have this decided before Christmas, unlike last yeah. time where they yeah. had a couple of months to campaign. Yeah. And who knows, you know, maybe it'll be decided in November, but it is kind of one of those scenarios that's hanging out there a little bit. And just to put a a fine point on this, the Senate control will come down, whether Mitch McConnell returns as majority leader will come down to Herschel Walker becoming a United States senator. 
it seems that way at this point. I would say... Well, if that scenario plays out. If, certainly if that scenario plays out, right? I mean... Obviously there are other scenarios. Yeah, but those scenarios rely on... We're talking about, like, if not him, Dr. Oz. Right. Or, you know, a potential surprise in another state that's not really on the radar right now. Mark Kelly, the Democratic senator from Arizona, has enjoyed polling leads and over his Republican challenger, but that's a state where it's kind of difficult to imagine anyone winning by more than a few points. So... yeah. You know, but the reason I mentioned that is because the great irony of like McConnell having to go all in on Herschel Walker to run the Senate would be quite a story in December. And you'll have the continuing Trump. You know, this, of course, is a Trump candidate that a lot of Republicans didn't want. So if it all comes down to Georgia for Republicans, some karma there in terms of the path back for McConnell, if that's his salvation. Yeah. And, you know, you can see also in the kind of recent collective decision that Republicans have made to stick with Herschel Walker, this calculus exactly, right? Yeah. The um, control of the Senate is not unachievable, but it's like kind of difficult to imagine Republicans doing it without him winning. All right. Sticking with the Senate, you're talking about the Democratic incumbent in Nevada. looks like she's pretty weak right now. But you still think in Pennsylvania, Fetterman has a slight edge. If you were giving people a sort of like, just watch these two, three Senate races and you'll know everything you need to know on on election night, what else would you put in there? Yeah. No, I I mean, I think those are really the main ones. Nevada, Pennsylvania, Georgia. New Hampshire? Or that's pretty much... I would put New Hampshire and Arizona kind of a little further on the edge there. Democrats are favored in both of those, I think probably more yeah. so in New Hampshire than Arizona, but these are kind of quintessential swing states, right? Yeah. So now the one thing I'll add to that, Ryan, is is watching these on election night, um, especially, unfortunately, the three I mentioned might not actually give us a lot of answers. Nevada is a very slow counting state. It is an all-male state. Well, it's not an all-male state, but it, it does conduct a lot of its election by mail now. I think every registered voter gets a ballot mailed to them there. Pennsylvania has pretty widely used mail, but local clerks aren't allowed to start processing those ballots until election day. Um, And so there's this big backlog to work up. And this is why it took so long to count there in 2020. That law has not been fixed. Same issue is going to happen in 2022, although maybe the volume of mail will be less because we're kind of out of the really dark days of the pandemic. And then Georgia is actually a comparatively fast-counting state, but also one where the parties are separated by very little. And so, you know, we might end up waiting there, too. So election night could go very late, like, all week (laughs) um, because of this. Yes, we might not know the outcome of Senate control on election night, even if Georgia doesn't go to a runoff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, like, it turns out a quirk of the you know, the Senate map this year and of kind of national demographics and the way things worked out. But pretty much all of the main swing states in the presidential arena have Senate races up this year. And the one that doesn't, Michigan, has a big governor's race. So we're really testing these battlefields and what voters are thinking there and what's motivating them. But also we're going to see a lot of the same delays in counting the same key states that we saw in, in 2020. Hopefully less in terms of degree, but there will be some lag in some of the key places. All right, let's move over to the House and talk yeah. about that. That's always a little bit more complicated because a lot more races. And, you know, at least for me, it's harder to, to sort of wrap my arms around a sort of simple way to, to think about and, and think about going into going into election night, think about like, 
the bellwethers and what are the, the indicators on election night or in polling right now of where this is going? How do you, when you're thinking about coverage and you're also thinking about um, what's going to sort of tell the tale, what are the, what are the things you kind of key into? There's a few different things. I love the house for this reason. You know, there, there's always a new kind of character to write about who illustrates something big and broad about American politics, but hasn't been covered ad nauseum the same way. So a, a couple of the things I think when when kind of trying to orient myself with the house is that, you know, we've we've really seen the the two caucuses like polarize along like education lines in, in recent years. Uh, you know, most of the the most highly educated uh, districts are represented by Democrats at this point, and vice versa. And so, you know, I'm I'm looking for the outliers on both sides, and and because every election, to some extent, is a story about like realignment along kind of a, a path we've we've been watching in a few elections before. Now, and, in other words, you, know, you mean a trend sort of breaking a different way? Uh, well, I'm I. You know, there's there's always a few key trends that continue, and and you know to to the point before about like not getting locked in on stuff, right? You absolutely can't get get locked in on the idea that something happened last time, so it's going to happen this time. And so one of the ones that that has been going on is this polarization by education. You know, so that doesn't mean it's definitely going to continue, but like I want to be watching so that. You know, either we can like identify these outliers on both sides that you would think are, are ripe to flip for for this reason, or if if we're watching this and we see those aren't flipping on election night and other parts of that old pattern are falling apart, we'll know that it's like, hey, something new and interesting is happening here. What's this? Let's write about it, right? Yeah. And so so that's that's a big one. What's on that list for you right now? There's a few interesting examples. You know, one of my, one of our colleagues, Adam Wren, just wrote a, a big piece about the um, uh, Republican candidate running in uh, Northwest Indiana, which is it's Gary, Indiana. I think is kind of the 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 anchor of the district. It's been represented by Democrats for generations and generations, but it's a place Republicans have felt kind of bullish about potentially flipping because of these long term trends, among other things. They're also really excited about about their candidate. Las Vegas also has three Democratic held swing seats up this year. And I think Nevada generally is kind of the epicenter for for some kind of broader questions about where American politics is moving and how Latino voters are feeling about the, the Democratic Party, which they've long been aligned with. But but we saw some some loosening of that foundation in, in 2020. Is that because of what you were talking about before and the po- polarization along education lines? And that's becoming more pow- powerful not just with white voters, but with Latinos uh, and black voters? It's definitely something that people are paying increasing attention to. And, you know, it works out a little differently in different places. I get the impression that that Democrats feel a little more secure right now about the Latino vote in Arizona, for example, than in, in Nevada. But yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I think the concerns about Democrats losing seats in Nevada is like very, very tied into increasing appeal for Republicans among working class voters who don't happen to be white, which is which has been a, a weakness for the party in the past. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you there, but you were you were continuing on with the, the analysis of the House and things that you're, you know, trends that 
maybe different this time around that your 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 sort of list of what could surprise us in terms mm-hmm. of, of trends yeah so I, i'm always personally like very interested to see after redistricting years you know not just where seats flip but also like where the battleground shake out i i think a relatively small number of kind of the really contested house races are happening in districts where one or the other party controlled the map drawing process. A lot of them are in states where an independent commission or a court or, you know, some sort of like bipartisan commission or compromise was was reached. Um, now, this isn't entirely true. I'm also very interested to see like where one party drew the line and may, may end up with egg on their faces. Like Democrats made some pretty big bets in Oregon and Nevada the metaphor I use for for this, you know, you you have like a certain number of, of, of bricks to like build build your you know your seawall, right? And so if you stretch them out over more districts, then you're you're lowering the the height of the wall, right? And so it takes a smaller wave to then breach it, and and potentially you know you could end up losing all three districts if you if you kind of stretch them all out into like D plus five, D plus six, D plus seven instead of instead of being a little less greedy, basically, and and um, making a few others differently. So I'm, I'm kind yeah. of curious to see what happens there. So, right. And we have, you know, Biden going to Oregon and some danger signs for Democrats in, was it Oregon 6, which Biden won it by what? Like, it was like a plus 13 Biden district yeah, or I something? Yeah, th- I think there, there's three Oregon districts that are open seats that, that Biden won by high single digits, low double digits. But, you know, the fact that they're all competitive... I think says something about the the political environment. And then also, by the way, they have this crazy governor's race going on there where you've got a legitimate three-way race between a Democrat, a Republican, and a former Democratic state legislator who's now an independent. You know, I I think the polls are kind of hovering around like 35, 35, 20 with the the independent in in third. Probably the Republican a little bit ahead, actually. But um, because of that dynamic, this is is an interesting place where, where Biden, who has not been on the trail a ton, this year because he's still not very popular. This is an interesting place where he can you know, potentially help Democrats by consolidating around their nominee in a three-way race. So Republicans are very excited about that race, thinking that that could be their big upset is a Republican victory in, in, in the governor's office in Oregon, this very blue state. Which, uh, yeah, there has not been, a Republican has not won a gubernatorial election in Oregon since 1982, I think. And I think actually that's not the longest streak in the nation, but it's pretty close. <laughs> it's that's a long time. Joe Biden was a young man at that point. The other thing you've mentioned, you know, secretaries of state races, not something that Politico or most uh, uh, political outfits have paid a lot of attention to in the past. Explain a little bit about why we're covering those races more and and, and how we're how we're approaching them. Yeah. Uh, well, the reason we're covering them more is because in in 2020, Donald Trump and his allies exerted enormous pressure on secretaries of state and other, you know, decision points in the election process from setting procedures and, and counting to like the actual certification of the vote. Enormous pressure on 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 various points. I think I think there's a, a clip out there of Arizona Governor Doug Ducey putting like a call from Trump to silent as he's like signing the papers certifying the election results. Oh, I haven't uh, in, seen that. In 2020. <laughs> so really... secretaries of state are a big part of this, right? The um, In Georgia, you know, the, there was that phone call with Trump asking the Republican secretary of state there, Brad Raffensperger, to find more votes uh, for him. Now the subject of a criminal investigation there. It, exactly, exactly. So this all happened in 2020. 
the votes were certified nevertheless. And then starting in 2021, Donald Trump and his allies start running a bunch of Trump allies for these positions. People who have said that they wouldn't have certified the vote in 2020 or, you know, were, were claiming that there's massive unproven fraud, all sorts of stuff like this. I, I you know, I think the implication is obvious, right, that he and and his allies want these people in position in 2024 to make sure he gets elected if he runs again for president. So obviously that kind of, you know, raises the stakes for these little known administrative positions in a major way. And the parties have been a lot more keyed in on them this year. We've been a lot more keyed in on, like, who are these people and how how would they act? By the way, there's a lot more besides, you know, just attempting to block certification, which would end up in, in kind of a messy court fight that a secretary of state can do to screw up elections. They can, they can kind of, you know, a lot of changes need to run through state legislatures, but there's all sorts of red tape. They can tie up things like mail voting. And so there, there's there's a lot of concern, including, you know, for example, among Republicans in Arizona about the, the Republican Mark Fincham, who's running for Secretary of State there, who, who's been kind of at war with the Republicans who run Maricopa County, the biggest county where Phoenix is, and run their elections there. So yeah, we've, we've focused a significant amount of attention on these races, on who these people are, on what they believe, on what they what they say they would do. I mean, the, the thing that we're, we're finding out now is, is and this happens anytime you kind of travel down the ballot in an election, voters definitely have not been as keyed in on this as the, the media has been. You know, we're now in mid-October, and um, there's not a lot of evidence that, that voters broadly know who these people are, who these candidates are for these positions on, on either side. And they're, they're, we're, we're kind of seeing a late rush of money into some of those races to try and, you know, air, air TV ads and, and other sorts of things to activate voters around them. But I'm, I'm pretty curious to see how they shake out. Moving up the ballot a little bit and just continuing with the states, we talked a little bit about the Oregon governor's race. What are the other um, governor's races that um, you have your your eye on and think will be important to watch on election night. Yeah, Pennsylvania definitely jumps out. You know, in in addition to being a key swing state, where by the way the governor appoints the the election chief election officer there, it's also a state where a Republican victory in the for the governor's race would probably mean an abortion ban um, in the state. Um, there's a Democratic governor right now who's term limited, but Republicans have control of the state legislature, and so. That's a, a big one for that reason, um, although Democrats are, are favored there. Uh, the, you know, there's a few other states in, in that where you could see changes on abortion policy based on on results of the election. Michigan, potentially. There's also a ballot measure there about it. And so Wisconsin, potentially Arizona. It's tricky in some of these states because there, there are very old laws from pre-Roe versus Wade that are that are on the books and, and states are like figuring out how to how to implement them or whether they can. And so, you know, state attorney general races in some of those states are pretty important for that reason, too. You know, so that kind of policy effect is something we're watching. Um, just to sort of open that up a little bit more, how are you thinking about the outcome of the, the midterms in terms of, of what it means for 2024? Because it's never too early to think about <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, well, so, so you've got the, the, the the governors who will have big national profiles, especially if they, you know, win a big reelection campaign the way that DeSantis might, and that on the other side that Whitmer might, you know, I think back to 1998 when George W. Bush won a massive victory in Texas, and it really set him up for the the, the 2000 uh, Republican primary. 
Abbott in Texas is up for re-election. Newsom is uh, in, in California is up for re-election. So the three big states, California, Texas, and Florida, where you know any governor who uh, wins a second term certainly will be looking at running for president. You know, a- any other outcomes of the midterms that you think are going to be really important for 2024, um, especially when it comes to the decisions that uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are likely to make? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know as as much as any particular people winning uh, the 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 results in those key swing states. I'm I'm going to be keeping a very close eye. You know, how are the coalitions shifting? What can they tell us about Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania? We're talking about a bunch of states that were, uh, you know, two points or less in 2020. A number of them could be that closer, closer again. Uh, you know, and especially in some of them, you have you, you have kind of these. Especially in in the Sun Belt, you've got what seemed like more of these like long term trends, kind of toward Democrats, kind of up against you know the realities and the the of a president's first midterm usually deals defeats for their parties, and so you've got these two very powerful forces colliding with each other in places like Georgia and Arizona. You know, I think I'm I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with some of Trump's endorsees and how they do. If Herschel Walker and Mehmet Oz lose their Senate races, for example, you could make a pretty strong argument that Donald Trump costs Republicans the Senate again, because in in 2020, there you know turnout among Republicans in Georgia was not as as great as it could have been because he he wouldn't stop talking about how elections were rigged, and so some people figured like what's what's the point? So I think that could potentially have a pretty serious effect on him within the party, maybe not. So much with the rank and file, but you know, so that's that's one thing I'm I'm curious about. And then, I think just broadly speaking, you've got a lot of Republicans who fancy themselves as as potential presidential candidates scurrying around the country right now, campaigning for all sorts of House and Senate and governor candidates. Uh, a number of whom just happen to be in states like Iowa or New Hampshire or Nevada, places with you know early primaries or caucuses, and uh, they are in three and a half weeks, going to lose this fig leaf of like, oh, I'm just trying to help the party win these elections this year, right? And um, and they're, they're going to have to confront this decision point of, okay, do I actually step out into this arena that like Donald Trump has done everything but but announcing he's running, right? He's really trying to like claim this space as his own and, and, and the, these other Republicans are going to have to decide. It's like, okay, I've been doing all this preparation. I've been, you know, I've been raising money. I've been campaigning for people I've been I've been traveling and 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 you know hiring staff and whatever else all under the auspices of like you know okay like helping the party in 2022 whatever they're, they're about to lose that that cover right and then they'll have to make a decision of okay do I actually step into this arena with Trump um, which is not a place to date that any other Republican has has acquitted themselves well in in you know single combat with him yeah, but all of these guys and, and, and women are going to try and come out of the midterms with some kind of bragging rights, right? So if you're Ron DeSantis and you win, I don't know, you beat Charlie Crisp by 15 points and the main guy you got to take down, Donald Trump, endorsed a bunch of terrible candidates that cost the Republican Party uh, the, the Senate, you know, that's a pretty good uh, outcome for DeSantis in his attempt to sort of like, hey, who is the person that's going to like lead the Republican Party to victory here? You want the 
the guy who picked Herschel Walker and, and Mehmet Oz. Now, maybe they'll win, so this is all moot. But it seems like a lot of those 2024 candidates are, uh, are, are trying to position themselves, uh, you know, in, in a way where after the midterms they can, they can take some credit for, uh, for what went down. Yeah, I mean, th- this is an age-old dance, right? And, uh, you know, even you, you, you mentioned George W. Bush's re-election in, in 1998, right? It, it, it not only kind of like proved his, his electoral strength and, you know, winning re-election in a state that previously had had a, had a string of, of Democratic governors, but it was also an opportunity for him, right, to, to build this enormous donors of bundlers and to, to finance that, and, right? And then he was able to stand on that foundation, uh, to to launch his his bid for president, and so it was also a bad year for Republicans in a year that they should have had a good year. So the fact that his reelection was so so sweeping really made him stand out. So Scott, thank you very much for doing this, and um, I hope you're right about what's going to go down on election night. And and El Cerritos, the way that you described your job and sort of making sure that our readers know that there are a range of options. You know, I think you've executed that brilliantly so far this year. I appreciate that, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for chatting. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Allington is senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Gianni Amant is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.